Well, good morning. Thank you for that warm welcome. You have no idea who I am or where I come from. It's very nice of you. I went for a run yesterday morning uh, from the old mission all the way down State Street. And I just, I'm from Georgia, from the South, and currently in Oklahoma. And so I thought I would test the people of Santa Barbara just to see how friendly you are. And there was not one person who did not respond when I said good morning. I mean, you can imagine all the people that you encounter in the dark running down State Street. Every single person said good morning. So I feel welcomed already by your beautiful city. Thank you for having me. Um, As Chris said, my name is Stephen Posey. I'm one of the pastors at a church in Tulsa called Church on the Move. Um, and we are not on the move. We have a lot of, uh, a lot of space, a lot of, of land, a lot of church uh, uh, square footage. It's been around for 34 years. I've been there for 25 of those years. And uh, I actually met Chris through Joseph um, at Western Seminary. And uh, he's, one day he said, hey, why don't you, why don't you come hang out? And we, we hit it off with Chris. And so he just, like he said, did that pastoral move. And here we are. You're stuck with me. You didn't know you were going to be hanging out with a perfect stranger for 30 minutes. But uh, we've got the Bible. We've got the Holy Spirit. Let's jump right in. Uh, before we read today's scripture, I, there's, a, there's a practice I like to do because I have to do it. I'm tangential, and, and there's a way of kind of centering and honoring scripture that actually comes from scripture. It's Psalm 119. Verses 36 and 37, that's a little uh, secret for you in your own personal scripture reading time. If you'll just pray these words over yourself before you encounter scripture, you'll be amazed at how in tune and present you are. So um, would you do this with me? I know we just met. I'm going to go ahead and cash in on a favor. But would you just repeat these words after me from Psalm 119? Say this, say, incline my heart to your testimonies and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes from worthless gain and give me life in your ways. Okay, listen as I read Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. If you've got it on your digital Bible or if you've got an actual Bible, you can follow along. I'll be reading from the ESV. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid. In fact, they were afraid to ask him about it. Eventually, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This is a very familiar passage. Don't let the familiarity of this not let you receive it. Jesus said, if anyone would be first, well, first he, he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
And then he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, may this time with me and my new friends uh, magnify your name. Lord Jesus, magnify your name. Glorify yourself in and among us. May I not say what I'm not supposed to say, and may I say only what you want me to say. May I stay in step with the Spirit, but release the people to hear what you would have them to say. Allow them to follow those Holy Spirit tangents in their own minds, in their own hearts. Speak to us right where we are. We know your word is living and active and everything we need for everything we're facing, for everything we have is in you and it's in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Reality does not adjust itself to our illusions. Reality does not adjust itself to our illusions, though we want it to. Every year, I have the privilege of leading a group of men on an epic mountain adventure. Oklahoma is just south of Colorado, and in the United States, there are 96 14,000-foot peaks. 53 of them are in Colorado. Zero of them are in Oklahoma. (laughs) And we have this ministry called Mountain Men. It's a very creative name. There are men, and we go to the mountains. And uh, every year, we meet in February, and there are a couple of rules it's kind of like Fight Club. You, you have to know about it to get into it. Uh, we've been accused of being a cult. We're not. We're just going to the mountains and going to talk to God. And every year, uh, the, the, the only way to go to a mountain men trip is to be invited by someone who's already been. And so you really never know what those invitations are like. And so you get everybody in a room, and then you try to cast this big vision of what this trip is going to be. You, you tell them, this will be the hardest thing you have ever done. And you've got all these college athletes and all these macho men, and they're just like, yeah, 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 yeah. We meet every month, and we go over the plan. We tell them, this will be the hardest thing you've ever done. You have to plan. You have to train. You have to eat well. Set your eyes, set your gaze on that mountain. This will be the hardest thing you've ever done. We train every Saturday. We, there's, a, there's a little hill uh, that we just go up and down and up and down and up and down, put big old packs on our back. And every year of our 12-hour di- summit day, climbing this 14,000-foot peak, every single trip, there's a man a different man every time, who grabs me by the lapel about four hours in and says, why didn't you tell me how hard this was going to be? This is a little bit of what Jesus must have felt like after the resurrection when everyone's looking at him like, how did, why didn't you tell us this was going to happen? 
This is the second what's called passion prediction in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus is, he's like a good shepherd. He's like a pastor. He's like a good mountain God. He wants to tell the disciples what's happening. In fact, he goes out of his way. He wants to have this, this, this private teaching with them where they're not distracted. And he wants to present to them what's about to happen. Now, he maps on to their imagination that has been informed by Scripture since they were little bitty boys. He maps on to uh, their view of what the Messiah could be. And there are a couple of words that he uses, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But in our time together, this is a two-point sermon. Um, I I don't want you mad at me uh, because of long-windedness or whatever, but uh, two-point sermon. And the first point is this. The first idea is this, the reality of Jesus' lordship. The disciples in this moment, in this exchange, are going to see the reality of his lordship. Now, where I come from, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there's something called cultural Christianity. Do you guys have any cultural Christians around here? Do you know any? Uh, they, They like Jesus. If Jesus had an Instagram account, they would follow him. They would like every account, everything he posted. Uh, they, they want to be associated with church. They, want to be, they like the ideas of Christianity. But Jesus, or, or, or their idea of following Jesus, hasn't really shaped their imagination. It hasn't really changed the way that they live. And Jesus is presenting to his disciples something radical about the way they think about a king, the way they think about lordship, the way they think about greatness. The reality of Jesus' lordship is different than they think it is. It's bigger than they think it is, but it's also more difficult than they think it is. This is, as I mentioned, not the first time Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection. Just a few weeks ago, um, you guys went through uh, Mark chapter 8, which was the first prediction. And I'm going to read all three predictions. So I'm going to read the one you already heard. I'm going to read the one you just heard. And then I'm going to read the one you're going to hear in a few weeks from Mark chapter 10. And I want you to just tune your ears to see if you hear specific a, a hyperlink something that threads these three together there's a there's a way that Jesus refers to himself okay mark chapter 8 verse 31 and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed after 3 days rise again and he said this plainly mark wants us to know and then peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And we know how well that went over. Then, in a couple weeks, you're going to read from Mark chapter 10, where Jesus does it again. He says, in taking the 12, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Then today's prediction, Mark chapter 8, 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So, of course, you see the pattern Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being delivered. He's talking about uh, into the hands of certain people. They're going to kill him, and he's going to rise. That's the pattern. But did you hear the thread? What were the specific words that, that were connected in all three? Anybody? Any Bible nerds in here like me? Any, anybody pick up on what, what phrase Jesus used? How did he refer to himself? Son of man. Son of man. Jesus, first of all, is referring to himself in third person. That's not cool in today's vernacular. You know, when you hear a celebrity uh, or celebrity athlete refer to themselves in third person, you think, man, this person thinks a lot of themselves. That's not what's happening here with Jesus. Jesus, of all people, of course, could refer to himself in third person, and it's okay because he's Jesus. But there's something special about this idea the Son of Man. Why does Jesus call himself Son of Man? Why doesn't he just call himself Son of God? Why does he keep referring to himself in this way? It's kind of weird. My theology mentor, uh, Dr. Gary Bashirs at Western Seminary, says if it's weird, it's important. So when you're reading your Bible and you come up against something weird, slow down and and. Get out of concordance or, or ask a pastor, what does this mean? You might be surprised at how interesting it is. We pass over so many interesting things. Son of man, I heard that my whole life. Had no idea just how weird or how important it was. And the second thing he says is, don't be afraid to go where the Bible takes you. So these disciples are hearing Jesus refer to himself as son of man they're hearing the Old Testament. They're hearing the Old Testament in three words. They're hearing the story of Israel in three words. They're hearing all of their hopes and dreams in three words. They're hearing their messianic hope in three words. They're hearing about their future eternity with God in those three words, son of man. Where did it come from? Well, the first place, if you'll allow me to Bible nerd out just for a couple minutes. I if you don't want this, it'll be over in just a couple minutes. But listen, Psalm chapter 8, Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 9. This is the first place we hear Son of Man. Many of you will recognize Psalm 8 right away. It's a very famous psalm, but you may have missed this term. When I look into your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. So this is a prophetic psalm that goes back. It keeps on going and it talks about, it, it references creation. And so the psalmist is pulling you from Genesis all the way to the present, all the way through the time of David. And he's saying there's a king coming who God will put all things under his feet. 
Even the heavenly beings will be under the feet of this human king. By referring to the Son of Man, Jesus is mapping on to the dreams that Israel found in Psalm 8, but even more so in Daniel chapter 9. Bible nerd, side note, almost over. Go with me to Daniel chapter 9. Look at verses 9 through 14. As I looked, verse 9, the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who's the Ancient of Days? Who's the Ancient of Days? Pretty easy. It's God. The Ancient of Days sat on his throne. He took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair, the hair of his head was pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And a, and a stream of fire issued and came out from him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. Daniel's having a vision of the future reign of God. And I looked then because the sound of great words that the horn was speaking Again, if it's weird, it's important. As I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed. Who's the beast? Satan. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before them, before him. And to him was given dominion and gl glory and a kingdom, same as Psalm 8, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So this vision would have been something that a faithful Jew would have played in his mind over and over and over. When he prayed, he would have let his imagination be filled with what that throne room would have looked like. What God, who, who was this son of man going to be that comes into heaven, a man coming to rule over the cosmic forces in heavenly places and over people? Who is this son of man? Well, he couldn't be any higher in the imagination. And so the son of man, Jesus maps onto. He says, I am that son of man. And can you imagine the joy and the excitement? Can you imagine the elation that would have been in the hearts of these disciples as they followed this rabbi? Their rabbi, who was doing supernatural works, who the demons cried out and said, are you, going, are you here to, to, to put, put your foot on our neck? And by the way, the, the answer was yes. In other words, Jesus really was king. But here's the turn. He was not the king they were expecting. He was an incarnate king, one who came as a baby, 
They, their, their, their hopes were set. Their eyes were set. Their imagination was filled with this king who would come in glory. But the path to glory, they didn't understand, and they were afraid to ask him about it. In stark contrast to the soaring heights of Psalm 8 and Daniel 7, Jesus keeps talking about a very different kind of reality. The reality of Jesus' lordship is that it began with incarnation, but it led to a life of embodied truth through death to resurrection and ascension before glorification. But the reality of Jesus' lordship is that he really is Lord. So no wonder Peter rebuked him. Hold on. Are you sure you've got the right son of man imagery? I don't remember anything about you dying. I don't remember I don't remember this lowly. I mean, the, the cross is a curse, and you're saying you're going that path? To not understand, and by, by the way, the book of Mark has this beautiful contrast of this wonder-working person, this wonder-working rabbi who has all kinds of power, and yet... The contrast is that the disciples continually misunderstand his power. They continually misunderstand what he's up to. And Jesus keeps saying, don't you know how hard the summit's going to be? Don't you know what's coming? Don't you know what the Son of Man must do? That this is an upside-down kingdom. The Son of Man must go through death because resurrection is always preceded by death. To follow Jesus means, yes, soaring heights of resurrection, but it begins with surrender. It begins with receiving him as he is. To see Jesus with, as Savior without seeing him as a resurrected king or as a crucified king, is to not understand Jesus. But the second part of that is Jesus is saying, he really is Lord over all. Yesterday morning, I mentioned I was running, and as I was running, uh, I'm passing by homeless people that are in the, in the entryways to these beautiful shops on State Street, all these people coming in and out of hotels and cyclists just passing me, so many cyclists just passing me, and runners passing me. I'm not that fast of a runner. And I'm thinking about the idea that Jesus really is Lord, and I'm caught up in a moment of worship, and I begin to say, Jesus, you really are Lord. Jesus really is Lord. And I begin to say it out loud. And I pass by this homeless person who is uh, uh, grunting at me or kind of growls at me when I pass by. And I say, Jesus is Lord over the homeless community here in Santa Barbara. Jesus really is Lord over that person. Jesus really is Lord over the addict and the pusher. There really is a king and his name is Jesus. Jesus really is Lord over the fitness industry and all the alternative stories that we believe 
about being able to run away from death. Jesus really is Lord over consumerism and materialism and all the alternative paths that that tell us that utopia really is possible. Jesus really is Lord over State Street. Jesus really is Lord over Santa Barbara. Jesus really is Lord over California, over the United States. We serve a cosmic king who really did go through death and really is seated at the right hand of the Father and who really will one day come back and rule and reign and who you really will lay eyes on in his glory. The vision that Daniel saw, you will see. The second thing is this. In this passage, we see the surprising path to greatness. They came to Capernaum, and when they went into the house, Jesus did that thing that only Jesus can do. He reads their minds, and he says, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And I love what Jesus does. He doesn't give them a dirty look. He doesn't shake his finger at them. He sits down. He says, guys, come here. I just imagine a smile on Jesus' face. He says, come in, come in close. Let's talk about this. The last day of 2020, I got a phone call. I didn't notice it until it was a voicemail. I got a four-minute voicemail from a person who was on our staff, a few years younger than me, works in a different part of our church. And um, he didn't realize he was calling me um, because he was at coffee with a friend. And I could tell by the voicemail uh, that he didn't know that he had called me because he was saying some pretty bad things about me. He was talking bad about me. Anybody ever had this happen? What a gift this is to see how someone actually thinks about you. Four minutes. He says my name. Siri hears it and calls me. A four-minute voicemail. And I thought, oh, man, I'm going to have some fun with this. I'm not mad at him. I I see an opportunity for a conversation. And and by the way, the sights onto which God wants to pour out his glory in your life are those points of friction. The points of conflict are are the sights onto which he wants to show his grace and goodness. That's how I saw that. But I had a little fun with him. I took a screenshot. And I said, oh, this is interesting. And I texted him. I said, I'll see you in my office tomorrow at 3 p.m. Boy, was he scared. And boy, was that so much fun. I had to apologize for weaponizing that thing. But man, it was worth it to ask for forgiveness for that. Jesus did pull that move to the disciples. I know what you've been talking about. But he didn't weaponize it like I did. He said, you want to be great? Guess what? Jesus didn't chastise them for wanting to be great. We we do kind of judge them harshly for talking about greatness in light of Jesus talking about the Son of Man. Listen to the image. Didn't you just hear the imagery of Daniel chapter 7? That's that's pretty great. Wouldn't you be caught up in the imagination of this guy being that guy, of being that king? They're talking about greatness. Greatness. 
And Jesus, as a good rabbi, as a good pastor, pulls them in close. You know, John, who was one of those disciples who was there, he does the same thing. He imitates Jesus to the people that are following him, and he calls them children. He calls them children all the time. And I think that was the relationship Jesus had. And he pulls them in close. And this is what he does. I'm going long, so I'm going off script here just to wrap it up. Jesus says, I'll show you the path to greatness. You want to be great? I'll show you the path to greatness. Become the servant of all. He turns the whole thing upside down. Think about the world in which they lived. Think about the fact that their city, their world, had been radically changed with a new way of thinking. Hellenism and the Roman world and Herod, and they're seeing aqueducts and amphitheaters. They're seeing entertainment uh, that, that, is, that is violent, and they're... they're They're seeing their young people being pulled into this world where greatness is an entirely different thing than the way of Jesus. And greatness in that world, much like in ours, is always just out of reach. The problem with greatness in our world today is that it almost works. You taste a little bit of greatness, and it's hard to give up because it almost works. You're you're known for a certain thing, and and that thing you use to help you get more, to, to, to consume more, to be more. And Jesus turns the whole thing on its head, and he says, you want to be great, and that's a good pursuit, but be the servant of all. And then you notice what he does to prove it. He doesn't even leave the room. He says, hey, bring one of those kids over here. And he says, to receive one of these little ones is to receive me. Children, there are some commentators who say, some scholars who say, Jesus invented childhood in this moment. Children were so low, they were so worthless in that culture. Childhood was not even a thing. Today, we romanticize ch- ch- uh, children. We, we, children help us uh, look good. They, they help us feel good. They're cute. They're beautiful. They, they're status symbols for us, not in that world. They were less than nothing. And Jesus brings them and says, if you want to be great, it starts with the least of these. Essentially, Jesus was saying, I the greatest of all, am a son. I know what it's like to be called names. I know what it's like to have, to come from a family that is not respected. Jesus saying, I know what it's like to identify with the lowliest of the low. And yet, that is the path to greatness. Jesus turned greatness so much on its head that he essentially said, greatness, opportunities for greatness are everywhere. Everyone can be great because 
Everyone can serve. Everyone has something that you can give, something that you can do. The early church caught on to this so much that even when they didn't have enough but for their own daily food, they would fast so that they could give food to other people. Even though they didn't have any place to stay, they would hold in tight so that they could bring more people, show hospitality to strangers. When the plagues hit the cities and everyone exited, the Christians moved in close. They, they, they moved in close and they healed their sick and Christianity spread. Why? Because of Constantine? No. Because it was in the margins. It was through the voice of the least of these. Jesus showed a surprising path to greatness. And then he exemplified it. He really did go to that cross. This week, I would commend to you, as your practice, simply this. Practice greatness in the way of Jesus. Practice greatness in the way of Jesus. Now, some of you aren't abstract thinkers like me. Uh, when I wrote that, I thought, oh, that's good. Some of you are just like, I, I, don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Give me something concrete. Well, service, service. Richard Foster says, service is a Christian spiritual discipline that's not easy to capture in words. When we see someone intently listening to another human being, we are witnessing service in action. When we see a person holding the sorrows of another in tender, loving care, we are witnessing service in action. You can do that this week. When you see someone actively guarding the reputation of others, we are witnessing service in action. You can do that this week. When we see simple, everyday acts of kindness, we are witnessing service in action action. Here's the contrast. When people talk bad about you, do you take the power or do you move in close? Do you see that conflict? In the conflicts that are facing you this week, there are opportunities for greatness. I encourage you to keep in step with the Spirit, to remember Jesus really is Lord and when you step into pursuing greatness in the way of Jesus, through service, you're doing spiritual warfare. You're reminding the enemies of God that they are defeated, that they cannot bring division into your life. They cannot bring harm into your life. They cannot bring these alternative stories that pull you away from living like Jesus. In the economy of the way of Jesus, all currency, all, all estimations of cultural worth are obsolete currency. All cultural estimations of status and power are obsolete because we are in Christ. The only thing worth anything to a Christian is Jesus. And oh, by the way, he's worth everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege I've had to minister your word this morning. I pray that we all keep in step with the Spirit, that we all follow the way of Jesus, that as we step into our weeks, even as we leave church today, that you will quicken to our hearts ways that we can serve, ways that we can practice greatness in the way of Jesus. 
Thank you for those opportunities. Bring the right people across our paths so that we can serve and love in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together over the next few minutes. And as we do, I just want to invite you to respond in the way that the Holy Spirit leads you to respond. Those of you who are long-time reality folks, you know what to do. If you're not a long-time reality person, just watch them. Uh, they're going to lead the way. There are places to come down here and worship, to spend time with God. Right there where you are is a perfect place to do it as well. And then we have communion elements here as well. We invite you to participate in communion. Communion is a, is a reminder that Jesus really is Lord, and you can participate in his greatness right here in community. I invite you. Worship with us.